Welcome to Grover Center's Conversations on the Street, a Shelby County Bicentennial podcast project hosted by Grover Center and recorded in its exhibit, The Streets of Old Shelby. Over the course of this next year, we'll be taking a look at the fabric of Shelby County, how our past informs our present, and what legacy means to different people. Each episode will examine our historical events and figures, as well as contemporaries on the chosen topic through conversational interviews. At the end of each episode, we'll also be featuring musical selections from local musicians. This is Conversations on the Street, and we're so glad that we ran into you. On July 4th, 1822, around 200 people gathered in the fork of the Big and Little Blue Rivers. The occasion? to celebrate the birth of a town. The legislative commissioners had approved Shelbyville as the seat of justice for Shelby County. While it was formalized on paper, the town itself was really more of an idea at this point, forest so thick that water couldn't escape, save for percolation or evaporation, as one settler stated, stretched out across the village, making the ground swamp-like. Only about a dozen families had settled in the immediate area, including the Goodriches, Mayhews, Hendrixes, Walkers, and Gatewoods. The rest who attended that day had come from all over, most from the little town of Marion, the county's first settlement, but others arrived in wagons and horseback from other distant settlements. We can imagine birds chirping that day, the skip of an animal over dried leaves, and the sound of splitting wood as the settlers prepared bear, deer, and turkey for their celebration. And that night, after a day of feasting, Another sound filled the air. Music from a fiddle. You see, a circle had formed and each participant took a turn playing a song, making it perhaps the first performance held in the new town of Shelbyville. This performance highlights the power of music, how it brings us together, how it is used to express emotions words alone fail to capture. Music would be ingrained in almost every aspect of the community over the years so much so that it would be nearly impossible to list all of them here. It would be used as entertainment at the Blessing Opera House, a chance of reprieve from long work days. It would be used to mourn the death of Sheriff Albert McCorkle with a Democrat band playing in the funeral procession, and it would be used to celebrate. Before the Rembush name became synonymous with the movie industry, it was associated with music, with two of the brothers going on to work in the piano industry, and Frank, who became known for making a new type of movie screen and operating movie theaters throughout Indiana, starting the community orchestra, which played at the opening of the Second City Hall. Frank understood the power of music to connect and bring together. And when he opened his first movie theater, the Alhambra, he installed a cupola at the top of his building for bands to play on Friday and Saturday nights to encourage people to visit his theater. Music is part of our story. It's all around us, and if we take a moment to pause and listen, we can hear it echoing through time, connecting us to those that came before. Today, we're joined by Encomium Ensemble, a three-person group that has been featured in so many of our episodes and is made up of Joel Dela Schmidt, Carol Hatfield, and Gary Cope. Thank you for joining us today, guys. Well, thank you so much for having us on today. 
I think it's important for people to understand who you are. I know that I've introduced you guys so many times in our episodes, but having you present, maybe hearing from you will offer a different type of perspective than what I've offered in the past. So can you tell me a little bit about Enconium Ensemble? So we're all members of the Indiana Flute Circle, which is an organization consisting of Native American style flute enthusiasts. Uh, we play, promote, and educate others about the flute. And Gary and Carol are both multi-instrumentalists um, who have extensive knowledge and experience in music. And one day in 2018, uh, we decided to get together and try to play multiple instruments along with the Native American flute. And so thus uh, the Encomium Ensemble began. Since then, uh, we've, of course, increased uh, greatly our repertoire of, of tunes that we play. Uh, originally, it started just with simple um, hymn melodies from the past, and, and then it uh, grew from, from there. I'm Carol Hatfield. Um, I initially studied voice. Later on, I began to study uh, silver flute, classical, as well as jazz. Then I began with the Native American style flute. Actually, Native American style flute came first and led me to the silver flute. So I played with uh, within the flute circle and then joined an ensemble called Shalambish, which featured the Native American style flute, didgeridoo, guitar, keyboards. We threw all kinds of things in there, but featured the Native American style flute. And I decided that, you know, after flute, I thought, well, I think I want to go lower. So then I, that led me to bass, uh, began studying bass guitar on my own. And then I decided I wanted to, to do more than just rock. Uh, Gary and I uh, have a rock duo, actually, that's still going now, uh, in addition to Encomium. But I wanted to play early music. Uh, Gary became interested in early music. And I had classical background, and I thought, well, that's that's fabulous. I need to study that as well. So that led me to my seven-string classical guitar, which I use as um, a galachon, which is like a bass lute. So that's what I play uh, with the guys in Encomium. Um, I, I love it. It's with my classical background, I'm really enjoying playing early music as well as the hymns, keeping the, the melodies alive, um, keeping them in everyone's ears. Um, so that's, that's my background there. I'm Gary Cope, and I've been studying music since 1971, which was a long time ago. Um, I started out playing saxophone in high school band, got into the school at University of Evansville. And in my First year, I was offered a position in a band, which was my big dream all along. So I only went to college for one year <laughs> and then started playing music in bands. I've been playing in bands since 1978, I believe, professionally. I initially played keyboards in the bands and a lot of the music that we did was crossover jazz rock stuff. Since I was a saxophone player, I was interested in jazz a lot. All along, I've always been interested in classical music. I love classical music. It is uh, the thing that really touches my soul. I've studied all kinds of music. 
especially jazz and classical music, along with playing all kinds of rock and roll music. So that's where my start began. I had a long career playing music, and in 1999, the band that I was had been in for 15 years broke up, and I was offered to join this Native American flute circle. I got into Native American flute in 1996. We were playing down in Nashville, Indiana, and I went into a music store, and I was aware of Native American flute music, and there on the stand was Native American flutes for sale, and I bought one, and that kind of started my Native American flute interest, and I tried to incorporate that into the rock music we played at the time, which didn't work very well. So when when the whole band thing kind of stopped, I, I got into the Native American flute, and I was in that group for probably three or four years when the leader of the group stepped down and I became the facilitator of the Indiana Flute Circle in 2003, I believe it was. And we used to meet at the Idol Jorg and that, that happened for a long time. We played all kinds of interesting things at the Idol Jorg. We played at the Hilbert Circle, played all kinds of other places around the state. And Joel got in the flute circle, and that's how I met Joel. In 2016, I was introduced to a video on YouTube. Somebody sent me a video and said, check this out. This is really cool. And it was Jordi Saval, who is a famous European viola da gamba player. And he was playing this beautiful piece of music, and it really got to me. And I said, I, oh, it was Carol that, that sent me the video. And I told, I told her, I said, if I can find a teacher and an instrument that I can afford, then I'm going to learn to play this instrument. And so I started looking for teachers and I had no idea where to start, but I knew that Bloomington probably was a good source. There's no teachers in Indianapolis, it seemed like. Um, I ended up finding a teacher in Bloomington and started driving to Bloomington every week, taking lessons. And so I've only been playing viola da gamba for, what, six years now. And that's kind of how I got into the early music. I wasn't really that aware of early music until I took up this instrument and just fell in love with early music. The thing I like about early music I love Christmas time. I love the Christmas music, the way that it makes you feel. And it seems like that music, you only hear it during Christmas. Well, early music kind of sounds like Christmas all year. <laughs> so, well, my name is Joel DeLashma, and I play for the Encomium Ensemble, the Native American style flute and the Irish whistle, or penny whistle as it is sometimes called. I came to music uh, much later in life uh, than uh, Gary and Carol. In fact, I probably only started uh, playing uh, music in around 2015, I think, when I came to the Indiana Flute Circle. And that's when um, kind of my musical journey began. Um, as a kid, maybe I messed around with things, but was never serious with any of them. So, so I don't have a long uh, story to tell about history as in that, but, uh, but do appreciate what I've learned through the Indiana Flute Circle. I studied at the Irish Arts Academy of Indianapolis uh, for the Irish Whistle. 
and taken several uh, Native American flute courses as well. I think there's a lot of familiarity with the term rock and roll or rock music, jazz music, classical music. A few times you referred to the music that you play as early music. What is early music? What date range does that cover? What does that look like? Early music is, well, I can tell you about the instrument that I play, viola da gamba. Um, the viola da gamba sort of migrated from Spain down through the Mediterranean and back up into Europe. It was taken up by the Italians and the French and eventually the English. It got to Great Britain later than the other the other countries. It it sort of evolved over a period of time, but the earliest examples of viola da gamba were in the mid 1400s. The, the makers started refining the design, and it became uh, what you see today as a viola da gamba, probably around 1600. And then for a hundred years, it was the instrument to play. Everybody wanted to play the viola da gamba, but the people that most played it were royalty or more well-off people. The music that was being written were for courts and a lot of the music that was performed was also performed on lutes. So it was viola da gambas and lutes in these small ensembles, kind of an intimate setting. As time went by, of course, they wanted bigger and more, I would say, loud, robust instruments. And so they changed from gut strings, which the viola da gamba has on it, to steel strings. And after that, the viola da gamba kind of faded into history and became sort of almost extinct for almost two centuries. And in the early 1900s, it started sort of being picked back up and other people started composing for it and stuff. So early music would be that music in the Renaissance and Baroque eras that were played in smaller groups, quieter music because the instruments were, you know, of course they didn't have any kind of PA systems or anything like that. So everything had to be, you know, played intimately in a small group. They didn't have big concerts or anything like that. And then later on, as things evolved and cellos and violins and double basses came into the picture, you know, the audiences got bigger and bigger and it moved out of the courts into the population and became popular that way. So, did anybody else want to add? Oh, I've just added a little something here to it. Um, just, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, it kind of did, yeah. So, like I said, I, I know about early music just from you primarily. So. Right. <laughs> Uh, so this is Joel again. Um, I just wanted to, to make make a statement that, you know, a tune uh, that we refer to is a musical melody of, of composition. And then a song that sometimes we refer to uh, refers to a composition that has lyrics to it. It has It's made for the voice. Uh, so as we uh, talk about the music today, we might use the word tune or song, and there's a slight little variation in there. Uh, but we do play a variety of musical styles uh, throughout the ages. We do play the early music 
typically that style, even though we do play a lot of uh, folk songs and ballads and other things like that. Some from the early music period and some that are a little, little uh, earlier or later um, that also have that feel to it. Folk music, hymnals, early music, all of these have a historic root. All of these extend back. Why was that important for you as a group to be the thing that you focused on? Well, I was raised in the church. The very first exposure that I had to music when I was real small was in the church. And I grew up in the church hearing all these hymns, you know, and that was back in the time when when there were hymnals in churches and the songs were, it seemed like, at least in the church I was in, we had our favorites and so we sang those tunes a lot. I didn't know anything about the history of these tunes. So later on, after, you know, I studied a lot of music, I come to realize that a lot of these church hymns were based on folk melodies, maybe Irish folk melodies, or based on, you know, popular dance music. So what was going on was the Christian composers would have a set of lyrics and they would try to come up Of course, there were a lot of composers that created melodies, but a lot of times what they did was they found an old folk tune that would fit their lyrics, or they would have a folk tune in mind and they would write the lyrics for the folk tunes. So all those tunes burned into my brain all those years when I was growing up. I wanted to approach those and sort of bring them back because it seems like today, those tunes are fading away. It's hard to find a church today where you can go and sing old hymns. It's evolved and things are are different than they used to be, it seems like. So I wanted to look at the history of these tunes, find out where they came from, what they were called before, who the composers were, when they were composed. And a lot of them were composed pre-1800 and take those tunes and arrange them so that we could play those with our instruments. And because they were real familiar to me and I wanted to preserve those tunes. I really love that we are preserving these melodies. I think, and may I be so bold as to say, I think music sort of lost its way recently. And I really hope people do look more a little bit back and engage with this kind of, this music is easy to listen to. It's not going and sitting through a symphony or, you know, piano concerto or something which can bog people down. Ah, it gets boring. This is very accessible. And many of the melodies are familiar from folks might have heard in church. I think it's important to preserve these melodies, no matter if they came from 1400s Ireland and became incorporated as a hymn. They're being preserved. You know, back in the day, melodies were preserved by, especially in the folk world, you just, you learned it by ear from who taught you and you pass it on to someone else and you pass it on to someone else and there may be some changes involved and that's how it's supposed to be. It evolved. You added something to it when you learned it. Uh, music was part of the culture. It was part of you. It was ingrained, embedded. It was, it was in the soul. And this kind of music, I think, can be that way for the listener. If they find something that's catchy, something they remember. Um, if it's an early piece of early music, uh, like Frog Galliard that we play, they might not be familiar with, but it may be catchy. They, they find themselves tapping their toe or something, and they'll remember, hopefully remember it. And it's, I think it's just really important to put this music out there 
keep it alive, keep it afloat, keep it embedded and ingrained in the culture, in human culture. I think what was interesting in that is that folk music was something that you heard, you engaged with, you learned, and then you added your own flavor to, or you added your own piece to, you continued that. A lot of what we've spent time on in this podcast series is legacy. The idea that we have something and we are remembering it, but then we're engaging with it. We're allowing it to evolve. What other ways do you look at what you guys do as engaging and carrying forward legacy? As, as we play the music that we play, you know, we're a part of a continuing legacy that has, was left for us. Um, we are, so to speak, uh, carrying the torch onward, you know, that has been handed down to us so that future generations can enjoy the music just as we are today. Music is unique in the legacy that it leaves to be carried on among other sources of history. I think of poets and presidents, teachers and preachers of the past uh, before the age of recording. And we may have uh, the writings and the documents, but those actual voices are gone. They're lost. You can't hear what uh, president, you know, one of the first president's uh, speech was. You can read it, but you can't hear it. But with music, we have the writings, we call them scores, and we can recreate the voice of that tune with our instruments that we have. We can actually hear what those in the past heard by playing the old instruments or even exact replicas of those. And this allows us to bring the past to the present. And this is a very unique phenomenon that music can bring about. At the beginning here, you were talking about how you all met each other, how you got involved in Encomium Ensemble. And a lot of what seemed to be at the heart of that is this idea of community, that you are in your own little group of people, and then there is something that it draws you to this other group of people. And then out of that, there seems to be some sort of engagement that is born. Can you speak to this idea of community in, in the music world, uh, but then with those that you're engaging with in that audience? Yes. Yeah, so as an ensemble, you know, we're a, a team, basically. And so it, just like any team, uh, it's satisfying to be able to accomplish something together. And when we play um, an old piece of music and we're able to recreate that, relive that experience uh, that once was, you know, then there's something satisfying about that. Uh, so that would be more on the smaller scale, you know, as far as just us as an ensemble and individuals. Uh, but then fellow musicians, they love to get together and play as well. Uh, here in Shelby County, we have the Song Farmers Group. It's just a group of various different musicians just to get together to play together. I think of uh, Indianapolis has several Irish music sessions where different musicians get together and they play together. And so they're, they're coming together to, to play and, and just enjoy that experience together. Um, even our own flute circle that we're all members of, how we met together was uh, endeavoring to do that, you know, to bring uh, musicians together to be able to, to unite in that way. Um, it is interesting uh, to note how music has the potential to, as a community, to break through many barriers that oftentimes are met in a community. Um, and what I mean by that, I was listening to a podcast and there was a, a reporter that was talking about how he went to a Dolly Parton concert. And as he was there, he began looking around at all of the people that were there. And he wondered how it was that this music, this concert that he was at, 
had united together all of these people from different nationalities, uh, Democrats and Republicans, many religious affiliations, genders, etc. It was as if all the walls were removed and people united together to listen to this music. And so that's truly bringing the community together, you know, beyond these things that often drive us apart. Music seems to bring that together. I've always been the kind of person that enjoyed sitting on the porch with my friends playing music or making up music um, just on a whim. I invite my friends over and and we all sit around and we might we might come up with a chord progression or something and then some of my friends are real good improvisationalists and they'll improv over the top and to me that is more satisfying than playing market square arena back in 1987 or whenever it was i played there (laughs) and you know especially as i get older i'm not so interested anymore in playing music as a performance so much as sharing my music with people and you know we do that in a performance setting too but you know it seems like we were real serious about the performance aspect of it at one point and now I'm more serious about just sharing it with people than I used to be. This music that we play spawns from uh, dance music. A lot of early music is dance music. A lot of the actual tunes of early music is named after dance pieces or named after the dance itself. There's galliards and there's uh, alamans and, you know, different things like that. So all this music is for, you know, the community, the sharing of, you know, the good times or the fun that people have getting together to after a hard day's work, after the toils and strifes of life, you can get together with your friends and play music and enjoy what you're doing and listen to the fun melodies and walk around for the next two or three days with melodies stuck in your head like like I do all the time. (laughs) I think music does have a natural ability to create that sense of community and you have this overlap so you'll have this group of people that prefer this style of music but that kind of trickles over into this style as well and this style as well and you know a lot of a lot of us musicians especially but um, a lot of people love a lot of different genres of music and that broadens your community, that broadens, you know, what you go to listen to with others, even if it's online because of COVID and everything, it's, you still have a sense of community there. Musicians themselves getting together to play, that's a sense of community. Um, you'll have folks down in a holler in Kentucky getting together and play fiddle and guitar. And before you know it, everybody's dancing, you know, nothing else matters. It just creates this amazing energy, music's energy is extremely powerful to enlighten, to lift, to heal, etc. I've just begun studying lever harp, and that's a huge one for music therapy. Harp actually is not as common as you think it might be. It's very interesting as I've done my research. There are a lot of harpists in the world, but not as many as you think, and not as many luthiers that build harps. And it's very interesting. There need to be more, more harpists out there even instruments themselves. Everything about music creates a sense of community. Oh, I love the harp. I do too. I do too. And people get together and they learn it or they just listen to it. Um, I love rock. I love jazz. 
it's really remarkable. And you can get people, you maybe have some jazz lovers, and you get to talking with them, and you say, well, you know, I also play classical. So you got to try to listen to, listen to this piece, because I bet you'll like it. Well, I'm not really into classical. I know, but try this. And you can pull them over into something else and kind of expand their ears. Um, so music itself does just naturally create a sense of community. I really want to continue with that thought there. Um, this idea of pulling somebody over from one genre to the next. Um, and Carol, going off of something that you said even previously, that you felt that music sort of has lost its way. Um, how would you recommend to someone who really only listens to modern selections, find bits of themselves and enjoyment in the songs that you play and um, in the songs that you'd like them to come into a relationship with? I think, like I was saying earlier, the music we do is very accessible. It doesn't, you don't have to spend an hour listening to it or half an hour. You can listen to one piece and it might stick with you. And we don't want to scare anybody off with the word hymn either. You know, a lot of folks are like, oh yeah, I remember that hymn and that's awesome. But we don't want to scare anybody off with the word hymn. It's like, look, we want to preserve these melodies. We want you to listen to the melody. Uh, check this out. Listen to this. And I, I think by having music that is more accessible is a way to draw people in. I'm the kind of person that I love learning something new or being introduced to something new. Just like my story about, you know, Carol sending me this video of this instrument, and I've never seen that instrument. Along those same lines, we played a lot of performances where people come up to me and they say, that's not a cello, what is that? Because it looks like a cello, but has a lot more strings on it. And then I explained to them that this is an instrument that's more associated with guitars because it's tuned more like a guitar than a cello or stringed instruments like that. And in the conversations, they'll want to know, well, what made you interested in learning that? And I'll tell them, well, I was I was given this video and I looked at it and, and listened to it and it just really got to me. So I tell them, get online, look up look up this person, look up this instrument, look up this music and listen to it and see what this instrument can play. So I know a lot of people in my family have asked me before, what got you interested in this instrument? And I've explained to them. And now I know that they've, they're out there, you know, looking this up and listening to this early music that they would have never, ever encountered until, you know, I showed them this instrument that I played. So having this instrument that's really unique and unusual sort of leads the way into introducing new music to people. Yeah, so every song has a story that is carried with it, um, if one cares to dig a bit for it. Now, tunes also have stories. Maybe the tune carries a name of a person, place, or circumstance, or a type, certain type of dance, as Gary had mentioned. Um, and they can tend to convey a, a thought or a feeling through words, or, or just through the... Um, uh, the music itself, you know, uh, from within us. And some of the tunes that we play um, went with ballads that have quite morbid connections, believe it or not. Um, so like the Coventry Carol talking about uh, Herod's uh, massacre of the innocent babies, the three ravens, a story of ravens seeking to feast upon a slain knight before a maiden comes and whisks them away. Or Fortune My Foe, a song mourning impeding death. 
And so as I try to relate that to, to people modern, with modern music or that listen to modern music, you know, many modern tunes and songs, they share the ability to evoke certain emotions within a person, uh, the words that they convey. Although they, they might ha not have stories of knights or hangings or, or the slaughter of innocent in modern songs, but they do contain modern scenarios designed to evoke similar emotions. And so I think that, uh, you know, just drawing from the stories that are within the tunes, within the songs, the uh, historical reference there uh, would tend to maybe help to draw people that listen to modern music. Yeah, there's a story behind modern music, and there's a story behind the music that we play as well. So. Looking at an increasingly digital and electronic world, what are the pros and cons of that in relation to music overall, but also the music that you specialize in, you play. One of the things that's been a great help uh, to us as, as an ensemble, even in the past few years, is the digital preservation of the scores online. It's given us access to a vast collection of works from all over the world and, and from very, very old sources. And uh, before the online cataloging of these resources, our repertoire would have been much more limited to what we could find in a local library or a university uh, that's local or something to that effect. Um, and then the digital music has allowed us to be able to hear and learn from others playing the same tunes that we're playing. Although the notes and the scores will be the same from group to group, the interpretation and expressions um, may be very different, and we might be able to learn something from that as well. So. I think it's particularly fascinating that, Gary, you would have never even been able to venture into this type of stuff had you not been introduced to an instrument via a video. Yeah, that's that's really true. I know of, of groups that uh, go into libraries and dig out these old songs from particular areas, especially um, in Appalachia and, and down in the mountains. They'll go into a, a small town and go into a library and they'll dig through until they find, you know, some some references to these these old songs. And then they'll they'll bring them back to life and rearrange them and redo them. And there's even been some punk rock bands that have done that with with some of these old songs. So there's all kinds of genres that are bringing these songs back that are otherwise setting, setting on shelves in libraries and are probably forgotten. And of course, this day and age, it is super easy to record these songs now. Back when I first started, you know, if you wanted to record music, you had to book studio time in some studio and it was really expensive and I remember back in the early 90s I said to myself if I can get a computer and if I can find a way to record music on this computer you know myself then I, if there's a way to do that I'm going to learn how to do it and that got me interested in computers and that is my career now I'm an IT person and have been for 30 years now <laughs> And if it hadn't have been for that desire to learn how to make music without spending lots of money and booking studio time and all that kind of stuff, nowadays, you know, you can buy a, an iPad and download some apps and record something that sounds just as good coming out of your iPad as it did in a studio back in the 1980s. Technology has really, really helped musicians. 
Now, Carol, she still carries around this gigantic binder with all these music sheets in it that weighs 100 pounds, and I, I usually end up carrying them for her. But myself, I have this e-reader, and all of my music is right there in the e-reader, and I, I can set up set lists, and I have a foot pedal that turns pages, and it's like magic. Can you imagine if Telemann or Beethoven or some of those people had the devices available like that to them is unimaginable. You know, no more writing out all the music by hand and stuff like that. So that's the biggest, I think, technological advancement, or like Joel said, actually going online and finding all this music in PDF format. Um, I, I'm a very organic person, but I do love technology. And I think making music more easily available is amazing and wonderful. So if you're not able to see a live performance or, you know, with COVID and everything, maybe you don't feel safe doing it, uh, you don't want to travel somewhere, etc. there you have it online, uh, whether it's a live stream show, a recorded show. Um, and also when you're listening to something online, whether it's YouTube or wherever, oftentimes a website will bring up something that's similar so you might be drawn to, hey, try this. You know, these folks play very similar music, so try this. And you can, if you hear a piece you're interested in, you want to know more about it, you can Google everything. And uh, I just think you can string a lot of music together and feed off into other genres, other styles, other musicians really easily. I love to do that. Like, oh my gosh, that was so amazing. I'm going to look this up, you know. <laughs> and it just leads you off on all these threads and so you're spread out in a wider range of music and bands and soloists and instruments, etc. But even though technology has come so far, you could argue that, well, why don't you guys just buy keyboards? Because a keyboard can play the flute sounds and a keyboard can sound like a viola da gamba. Well, it's not the same. To hold that instrument you know, and, and feel the vibrations through your body is super important. To, to maintain or to carry on that organic process of making the music. Use all the technological advancements to get to that point, to where you're still making music like they did hundreds of years ago, you know, with an instrument in your lap. The energy that comes from an actual organic instrument, wood, especially wood, I mean, there's just nothing like it, and wooden string, that vibration of a bowed or plucked instrument can't be replicated if it's on a keyboard it might sound really good but there's no you're not feeling the vibration you're not seeing it you're not feeling that energy going through you especially from the, that viola da gamba is just very powerful especially if you're playing lower and that cannot be replicated in a keyboard that's totally missing so i think there are there's some technology that can hinder music and, and this is one of those instances if you were able to have a conversation with a musician who might have picked up some of your songs 200 years into the future, what do you think that would look like? What would you want them to know? And what would you want them to learn? So as I mentioned before, as, as we're kind of, what we're doing is uh, continuing a legacy that was left for us. And so I hope that we're able to leave that for those uh, that go on before us as well. 
And so 200 years in the future, who knows what music would look like then, as we've noted from our conversation today, how much it has changed in the 200 years uh, since uh, our current time. But, um, you know, if we had a conversation with someone then, I I suppose it would be uh, a lot of the similar things that we've mentioned that we've learned from those that came before us. Uh, with the the legacy, the expression of something from within us that we're trying to recreate through the instruments that we're playing. I imagine that instruments are going to be timeless because the instruments that we play today are just simply replicas of those that have been around for since 1500s, 1400s and beyond. And so I imagine 200 years from now, they're going to have a lot of the instruments that we have today still, even as much as we can do with technology and that, you know, it'll it'll still be that way. So yeah, I, th- I think that um, meeting with someone 200 years from now that's trying to recreate the music uh, that, that we generated would be a very similar experience to what we're going through now as the music, as I mentioned, is a continuing legacy as it just continues to go on and on it's it's it has a certain static aspect but then it has a dynamic aspect too as far as how it's expressed but the the base is still going to be there and so I, I think the conversation wouldn't be all that different than than just us sitting around with musicians today uh talking about it uh, i agree with that i don't think there would be much change really you know if you look at the broader picture of things in the need to go to a healthier way of living on this planet I think there is sort of a, a desire to be more, I keep using the word organic, and I know it's, that's generalizing, but to be more, that's the only word I can think of. But I think, you know, 200 years from now, I think it's going to be very similar. I think, you know, these instruments of wood and string and, and metal are going to still be there. It may even be more widespread. Um, I think there'll be even more of a desire to maybe return to that. So I really don't think there'd be a huge change. Um, you know, there could there be a, a better technology to spread it, to share it, etc. And as we've seen in our own PA system, wow, way cooler, more portable PA systems and, and easier ways of, again, sharing the sound. But I think in general, as far as instruments and music and musicians, I don't think the core of it will have that much of a change. And I'm hoping that folks will still be looking back to these old music books and scores and recordings, et cetera, maybe even finding more that we haven't found yet. For instance, down in the hollers of Kentucky, you know, uh, that music that needs to be heard. So maybe they'll be digging up even more that we haven't found yet. Well, if humanity is still on the earth in 200 years hopefully they they'll figure out all the problems and things will be better then than they are now but being a science fiction fan and reading lots of ray bradbury and isaac asimov you think back you know 200 years ago could people then even imagine i they couldn't even imagine what it's like today there's no way so i'm sure that we can't even imagine what it's going to be like in 200 years. They'll be listening to, if they still can listen to our music, they'll be listening to it and who knows what they'll be making of it. Maybe in 200 years, they'll be able to make music with their minds like we have to play with our hands. <laughs> you know, I don't know what it's going to what it's gonna be like, but if technology keeps progressing the way that it has the past 200 years, actually the past 50 years, you know, it's unimaginable what, what it'll be like. 
Today's featured artist is, of course, the Encomium Ensemble, and they will be playing Kingsfold Variations. This traditional English folk song listed as Child Ballad 56 and number 477 in the Raud Folk Song Index is considered a Christmas carol and based on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. This song traditionally used a variety of tunes, but one particular tune, published by Lucy Broadwood in 1893 and used in other traditional songs, inspired many notable works and appeared in several pieces composed by Ralph Vaughan Williams. The folk tune was arranged by Ralph Vaughan Williams as a hymn tune, Kingsfold, and appeared as I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say in the English Hymnal. The village of Kingsfold is in West Sussex, a few miles south from the Vaughan Williams home at Leith Hill. <laughs> 